I'm Abe Abariah, and this is Life After Pulse from WMFE. I just kept telling her, you know, you know, he's coming, he's coming, and other people are coming, we're not safe, we're not safe, you know, we need to go, you know, and she kept trying to call me down and tell me, you know, you're safe, you're in a hospital, they're on lockdown. I mean, yeah, I was thinking I could get shot, but I'm going to continue to care for these people, and we're going to do what we can. We don't even have, we didn't have a sheet to cover up a patient that was deceased that was just going to go be lined up with other bodies. So it was, that was one of the times that I was like, this is very, this is very, very bad. It's been one year since 49 people were killed and more than 50 injured after a gunman opened fire at Pulse nightclub in Orlando. In this episode, we go inside Orlando Regional Medical Center, the trauma hospital just three blocks from Pulse. ORMC treated more than 5,000 trauma patients last year, and 15 to 20 percent of those patients were shot or stabbed at the so-called gun and knife club. That makes ORMC the busiest trauma center in Florida and in the top 10 percent nationally. Even with all that experience, ORMC was flooded with victims in the chaos. Police brought victims by truck and cruiser, and victims brought themselves bypassing ambulances. 36 victims with multiple gunshot wounds in the first 36 minutes. There were 32 staff members in the ER when it started, and that means it's possible there are more patients than staff before the hospital called in help. By the time police breached Pulse nightclub, ORMC got 44 shooting victims. Nine of them died. So how did it happen? What happened inside ORMC? In this episode, we'll look at the first harrowing wave in the ER, a call that shots were fired inside the hospital, and the second wave of patients after the breach. Then we'll look at how the hospital handled hundreds of friends and family who gathered desperate to find their loved ones, and what the pulse shooting can teach other hospitals about how to prepare. But first, we'll start inside Pulse Nightclub. Chapter one, getting to the hospital by any means necessary. Amanda Grau is 34 years old. When we met in her hometown of Tampa, she's wearing a red polo and matching red ball cap turned backwards and a pair of shorts. Sunglasses and a silver chain hang from her neck. She has this bright, easy smile. On that Saturday night, she went to dinner with her family for her father's birthday. Afterwards, her and her friend Christopher Sanfeliz went to downtown St. Petersburg on Florida's west coast for a few drinks. And then they saw pictures of friends posting on Instagram about being inside Pulse nightclub. So we kind of looked at each other and we said, we want to go, do you want to go? And we're like, yeah, yeah, let's go. So we made the drive and we actually ended up um, getting out there, I want to say it was about 1.15. They made the hour and a half drive to meet their friends. They had a few drinks, dance, talked. Her friend Christopher asked her to hold her drink and went to the bathroom. Well, I initially I did not see him because I had my back turned. So um, I guess when he had came in, um, I heard pop pop and I thought it was firecrackers at first. So then when I had turned around and I saw um, him pointing the gun at everybody, that's when I threw the drinks down and I started running. And so when I started running, um, I felt uh, the first blow underneath uh, my arm where my armpit's at. Um, and then I hit the ground. Amanda isn't sure how long she was out for. I kind of came to and all I can hear is screaming and uh, people running and then you could smell the smoke from the gun and so I get the strength to get up and I see him there I see him he's um, fidgeting with his gun 
So then I start running towards um, the right side where they have a door there where you can uh, go into another room. She got to the door, but she hesitated and stopped. Stopped, and then I turned around, and then I had seen um, a pile of bodies, and then my friend Christopher St. Felice, which passed, he was on top. So I yelled his name, and I went to go run towards him, and he didn't respond or answer, and he just, um, so at that point, didn't know if he was just, you know, pretending or not. So when I was trying to run, I saw him cock the gun. So then I immediately turned back around, went through that door, and I ran into um, the, the women's bathroom, into the other room, where I was there for over three hours being held hostage. We'll pick up with Amanda's story a little bit later in this episode. But at this point, police have gotten the calls about what's happening inside Pulse. What is the location of your emergency? They're shooting at Pulse. I'm there. They're shooting at Pulse. They're shooting. They're, 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 they're like, oh, my God. Okay, stay on the phone with me. Don't hang up. Do you know what's another cross street there? It's next to the hospital. And once I got to the intersection of Orange and Cayley, you just see it's just mass pandemonium out there. There's so many people out there. That's Orlando police officer James Highland. He pulled up right in front of Pulse with his black pickup truck. If you watch TV news coverage of the shooting, you probably saw that black F-150. Officers used it as a makeshift ambulance. But at some point, Officer Ambergio sort of commandeered my truck, and he was using it as a makeshift ambulance. And then that's when people that we were pulling outside, the surviving you know, people with injuries and everything, the survivors, we were pulling them out. And uh, as we were pulling them out behind cars, there was, I mean, I've never seen so much teamwork because it was just a leapfrog effect. It wasn't just me that was pulling, you know, injured people out. There was numerous officers out there from multiple different agencies that were doing the same thing that I was doing. And then there was other officers that were behind them that were taking those wounded and loading them up on the truck. And then Officer Ambergio, you just started doing ambulance runs back and forth from the club to the hospital. That driver was Officer Joe Ambergio. At this point, he's taking four and five people at a time in the pickup truck to Orlando Regional Medical Center. Other officers are riding in the back, acting as a human tailgate to keep people inside the truck's bed. Other officers are bringing people in the backs of police cruisers, and still others are bringing themselves the three blocks to ORMC. This is not what would normally happen. Usually if someone's shot or stabbed, it's an ambulance that brings them to the hospital. The people have been assessed by an EMT who radios ahead to the hospital so they know what to expect. So the hospital had no idea what they were getting. Here's Officer Joe Ambergio. When you get there, you know, what are you seeing when you get to the hospital? I mean, they... they... Cluelessness. They had no... I'm getting goosebumps talking about it. They... At first, I, I went the wrong way in the emergency bay because I just thought if I came that way, it would be easier for them to... to you know, unload the victims. And they're like, what are you doing? What are you doing? You're going the wrong way. And I, and I tried to tell them, hey, we have a massive situation right down the road. And they couldn't fathom it. And then another couple passes, then there was 15 doctors out there, 20 doctors. And they really understood what, what happened. So by, you know, further along that you're going, they're outside waiting with beds and trying to help you guys unload and at, at that point, with the first one or two pickup truck runs, that was the first. Those were the first victims they saw. Cause no, I mean, it's maybe a quarter of a mile walk, so no one even made a walk there yet. Mm -hmm. So, 
um, then they started realizing you know, what they were in for. And this process continued, pulling out survivors and getting them to the hospital by any means possible. Officer James Highland talked about becoming physically exhausted at one point, nearly collapsing from dragging people outside the club. So once I was inside, I mean, it was just one after another. Um, there was officers that had long guns in their rifles, and at one point I remember I had to hold two rifles because officers were extracting people left and right out of there. Um, but uh, once we got all the survivors that we knew out of there, that's when we sort of started pulling back because there was mention of explosives. But even when he mentioned explosives, even before, we sort of looked at each other and we said, we can't leave. We can't, we can't let these people stay in here. So that's when the pace became a little bit faster of getting a lot of the people out. And once we were confident that we got a lot of the survivors out, that's when we sort of started giving the distance and pulling back and letting our SWAT team handle things at that point. Three blocks down the road, staff members at Orlando Regional Medical Center didn't know what kind of patients they were going to get or how many. Libby Brown is a nurse in the ORMC ER. And then I got a text from my husband, who's an Orlando City fireman, and he said that we were going to get multiple victims from the vicinity of Pulse. He was like, you guys are going to get busy. And then I turned around to go back, and then that's when I saw the commotion going on, everybody staring out, looking, looking at the police lights outside and stuff. Libby's friend, Liz Burrows, works with her in the ER. She remembers those first few patients that came through the door. I remember everybody being eerily calm. Because when typically when people come in with gunshot wounds, they're usually in a lot of pain, mm -hmm. screaming, um, and everybody was really calm. Shell-shocked. Yeah, pretty quiet, actually. Um, you mean the patients? Yeah. Uh -huh. I mean, it was eerie because they had massive wounds. I mean, these are not the gunshot wounds we are used to seeing. Mm -hmm. And like what was told to me later by Orlando police was that the, the caliber of gun that was used was just much bigger than what they're used to seeing, you know. Mm -hmm. um, and it did a lot of damage. So it was surprising to see how calm they were. But then they just started rolling in so quickly. And then the ones that came in deceased, I mean, it just kind of took us all. I know I was in shock because everybody was so young, you know. Dr. Chad Smith was a trauma surgeon working that night. Yeah, so the, the first patient came in, and he actually, you know, he was shot in the abdomen, and he was stable, complaining of belly pain. And then um, you know, ordinarily, if it was just him, he would go straight to the operating room. But this wasn't an ordinary night. The second patient that came in uh, was, was, was dying, and um, we um, uh, did a couple of, uh, you know, placed a t tube in his chest to improve with no improvement, and, I mean, he was literally... Dying, we we did an incision, you know, an incision in his chest to try to save his life, but he he ultimately died. An incision in his chest, maybe the most understated description of what was done at the bedside. They did what's called a resuscitative thoracotomy. I mean, it's a incision in the chest where you open the chest and you know, clamp the aorta and and you know massage the heart if you need to or evacuate blood if you need to. Uh, but uh, the inside his his chest cavity, the bullet had just kind of you know done its damage to his spine, his aorta, his, you know, uh, so there was no way to save him. Nurses Libby Brown and Liz Burroughs remember that patient. Patient, they just started the thoracotomy on. Oh, and, uh, yeah. Everybody was, I think that's like the most traumatizing, one of the most traumatizing things that people remember, I guess, was that. There was an attempt to try to save um, one of the victims that came in, 
and it was, I, I it, it was just a uh, very intense scene to watch because Dr. Corso worked so hard to try to save him, and this, he just was not going to live. And so you look over at one point, and he's just agonally breathing. At this point, the idea of triage came into clear focus. So he had cut from one end of his ribcage to the other to try to to uh, try to visually see where the bleed was to try to stop the bleed. And at that point, that's when Dr. Smith, the attending on that night, stopped him to let him know, like, we, we've got to use our resources. In the, Appropriately, yeah. And, I, and I, I cannot give them enough credit as far as having the sound mind to systematically yeah, stop and triage and assess every patient to figure out what do we do with this patient and do it quickly. Mm -hmm. Dr. Smith was amazing about yeah. uh, how well he handled all of that. Um, yeah, he did fabulous. He was, I, we couldn't have been happier that he was the attending on that night because he, he just has the mindset and the personality that would, I think, out of, you know, that was very well suited for that kind of situation. And he, I agree. And, and he's very, um, you know, assertive and calm and that kind of thing. And he was able to go ahead and make those decisions very confidently without any questions you know, in an extremely timely manner, which, and, you know, and take that great responsibility on himself, so. Um, but he yeah. did it, he did incredible, so. Assertive and calm, maybe the words others use to describe Dr. Chad Smith that morning, but that's not how he remembers it. On the inside? Uh, you know, I thought to myself, what, I, I, I don't know what I'm going to do, right? I, I mean, I, inside, I panicked. They tell me I didn't look panicked, but, you know, inside, um, you know, I was like, oh, my gosh, what am I going to do with all these people? And so, you know, I just kind of set about doing I mean, you can you can sit in the corner and cry or you can just start. You got to start somewhere. Now I want to stop for a second and address something a little bit basic. Triage. For most people, triage means healthcare is not on a first come, first serve basis. At some point in your life, you've probably been sitting in an ER and seen someone walk in after you and get seen sooner. It's an inconvenience, but for most of us, that's all triage will ever be. During an incident like Pulse, triage is different. On any other day, a patient comes in with multiple gunshot wounds and is dying. They'll have a team of literally 20-plus nurses, doctors, respiratory therapists doing everything possible. CPR isn't like the movies. People don't stop after 30 seconds and say he's gone. CPR can last 30 minutes, an hour, longer. Patients are brought to surgery, given machines to breathe, drugs to force your heart to pump. Modern medicine is almost too good at keeping people alive. But when your hospital is overrun with a mass casualty incident, triage means doing the most good for the most people. That means you stop care on those who aren't going to make it. Paramedics do this during war. Most healthcare workers are never going to have to make these kinds of calls. Well, and you know, that's... Here's Dr. Smith again. When you realize that a patient is, is not going to be able to be saved, um, any care beyond that point um, is potentially taking resources and um, physician effort, you know, supplies from another patient that we can save. Um, and so you have, to, you have to be able to go from doing the maximum amount of things for one person to doing the the using limited resources f f to save as many people as possible. And, and had you ever had to do that before? Well, we've trained to do that, you know, in our dr disaster drills. Um, uh, you know, not 
not in reality. No. Dr. Chad Smith called everyone who was on call that night, literally every trauma surgeon. That included Dr. Michael Cheatham, who drove through the police roadblocks for Pulse to get to the hospital that night. Uh, when I entered the emergency department, the first thing I saw was, was gurneys lined up. Um, and I saw these gurneys lined up in the hallway outside of, of our what we call our trauma bay, which is where we take care of the sickest patients. And the first thing I saw was a pair of beige high heels protruding from underneath a, a sheet, uh, which was obviously one of the first victims who had, had died. Um, and, and that was unusual. Uh, I've never seen that before. And so I continued on past that uh, and into the trauma bay uh, to where the, the, it was quite busy. This was clearly worse than anything he'd seen in 21 years as a surgeon. He asked Dr. Smith what needed to be done and immediately took a patient to the operating room who'd been shot in the back. That surgery went quick, and he let one of the surgical residents finish up with the patient. His second patient was critically wounded. He didn't wait to call up to the operating room. So that, uh, that patient was um, in profound shock uh, when he arrived. Uh, he had multiple gunshot wounds uh, to the chest and abdomen. Um, he, he was actively bleeding. Uh, we got in the elevator, uh, and um, his, his heart stopped while we were in the elevator. Uh, as I said, it's only two floors. It's a very quick ride. It's a, a fast elevator. Um, and so we immediately uh, began CPR. Uh, and uh, as the elevator doors opened, we were rushing down the hallway to the operating room. Uh, got him into a room continued uh, CPR. Sandy was, uh, Sandy Mukherjee was, was trying to uh, give him drugs to get his heart started. I was pumping on his chest. Um, but it became rapidly uh, apparent that, that he was not going to be able to survive. Uh, and at, at that point, we, um, we had to make uh, a difficult decision um, because we knew we had so many people downstairs that uh, were bleeding. Uh, and so there are certain things that we can look at in vital signs and like that, that tell us whether somebody has a chance to recover or not. Uh, and he, he just had no blood flow at all uh, and was not responding to anything that we did as we had pumped on his chest and given him uh, several rounds of drugs. And so we went ahead and stopped CPR um, because it was clear that he was not going to be able to survive. Uh, and um, I went back downstairs. This kind of triage has weighed on many of the healthcare workers since Pulse, especially those who had to make the calls in the heat of the moment. Nine patients died at ORMC. Did they make the right call? Those autopsies showed the nine people had catastrophic wounds, and they came to a level one trauma center, the best place for them to get care. But know this, those nine faces are burned in the minds of the people working that night. Dr. Cheatham again. It was, uh, it was a difficult decision and, and one that we don't normally have to obviously make uh, when we only have one or two gunshot wounds come in because we can spend quite a bit of time. Um, the, the medical examiner, um, when, they, when they looked at that patient, uh, found that his injuries were not going to be survivable. Um, so that... Um, 
it tells us that we made the right decision, um, but it's, it's a decision that you normally only have to make in a disaster situation. One thing that made Pulse such a deadly disaster, the weapon of choice. Nurses Libby Brown and Liz Burroughs say the wounds were unmistakable. They were just so big, too. Like, usually, you know, we'll, we'll be rolling people and we'll be looking for, you know, wounds. You didn't have to look. They were, it was obvious where people were injured with most of the patients because it was just humongous. Yeah. I mean, there was no way you could, you could miss them. You didn't have to look for any entrance or exit wounds or anything like that. Yeah. They were, it was just, they were, they were just like gaping large areas that I was like, I remember thinking, like, what could do this? Like, it didn't even, like, it didn't really dawn on me. Because I kept thinking, like, oh, I know they're gunshot wounds, but I kept thinking what, what would be able to do this to someone that, that would be that big. So. Yeah. What could do that was a Sig Sauer MCX. This is a semi-automatic assault weapon. Nurse Liz Burroughs has a concrete example of the difference between the wound from a handgun and an assault weapon. A lot of times they'll put rods to stabilize bones that are fractured from, from gunshot wounds. They had to use cement because there was so much damage to the bone. According to the FBI, out of the 8,100 people killed by firearms in 2014, 68% were killed with a handgun. Handguns, as opposed to rifles and assault weapons, fire bullets at a much slower speed. Dr. Josh Corsa has unique perspective on this. He was the chief resident on the trauma surgery team the night of the shooting, but he was also a paramedic in the U.S. Army who was deployed to Kosovo. Unfortunately, we are seeing more and more of these assault rifle-type injuries. We had another AR-15 um, shooting last week. And again, this goes back a lot to my military experience. The AR-15, um, it's called either the 223 round or the 556, is basically just a very high-powered 22. And people that know what that is, it's one of the smallest... Um, bullets available. And where it does its damage isn't necessarily in the size of the round, but the amount of energy behind it is a very, very fast moving round. It moves like 3,000 feet per second. Um, so the entrance wound is really a centimeter or less. It's very small and very easy to miss, which is why we have to examine the patient so closely. The exit wound, however, is massive, anywhere from fist size or larger. And the amount of damage it does through that shock wave as it travels through the body is catastrophic. And those are injuries we do not see a lot. It's so much more devastating than a handgun round. And, and my understanding, too, from what I was sort of researching on this is that when the bullet hits, it then starts to, like, flip inside, and, and that just adds to everything. It does. Um, it's a, a phenomenon called tumbling, if you will. As the bullet starts to meet resistance, depending on where it is, it will kind of pivot on that axis of resistance. So, for instance, if it hit a, hits a bone the back end is going to swing around and it's going to continue to tumble end over end through the body. That create both the large shock wave that I talked about as well as direct tissue damage from this um, large tumbling piece of metal going through the body. When you combine the number of patients, how quickly they got to the ER, and how catastrophic the injuries were, resources became scarce. What were some of the resources that maybe got stretched a little bit? Yes. <laughs> We're one of the busiest trauma centers in the country, and we do a very good job at it. And unfortunately, we've had a lot of experience in handling innumerable traumas. A few months back, we had 11 people shot in a night, uh, six of which at a pool club shooting. A few years back, we had an unfortunate car crash where a car went through a daycare. And so we have experience in flexing up to these large numbers. But no organization, no hospital in the country 
really the world can prepare for that many patients adequately. It's not feasible in, a, in time, in space, in money to have all of these supplies and the rare eventuality you're going to need hundreds and hundreds of everything. Um, so we were stretched on a lot of our supplies. The nice thing about having such a wonderful supply department and sister hospitals all around us is they were able to feed into us a lot of the supplies we needed uh, from Arnold Palmer Pediatric Hospital, uh, Winnie Palmer Women's Hospital, and then from the surrounding hospitals. So we got a lot of the supplies we need. Another advantage having one blood, uh, the blood donation center within a mile and a half of here allowed us to get all the blood we needed in a very rapid fashion, which would have been catastrophic if we had not been able to have that. And, and we should mention, too, you know, Arnold Palmer and Winnie are very close. I mean, they're walking distance. Yeah, within hundreds of feet of us, yeah. So do you think that if you'd gotten 20 more patients, 30 more patients, that, you know, you guys would have gone past that breaking point? It's hard to tell. We would have made it work. I have no doubt we would have made it work and taken care of everyone. It would have been harder in terms of a physical space. Our emergency department is only so big. And, and a lot of these drills across the country, everyone runs into the same problem, where the emergency department is the choke point. Getting people through there and up to the floor so we can open up that space for new patients is always a struggle, especially when you're short on staff in the middle of the night. Um, trying to treat these patients and get them upstairs. So we would have made it work. It would have required more creativity, I think, in terms of where to put the patients and how to take care of them. But it would have been significantly tougher. There were so many patients, doctors didn't use the normal charting system. Instead, Smith and Corsa improvised and switched to stickers. There's a photo from that night with both Smith and Corsa with a string of patient ID stickers down the legs of their scrub pants. Okay, he's got a wound in his belly, his blood pressure's low, he needs to go to the operating room. This person has a wound in their chest, they, but they're, they're okay, they need a chest tube, they're going to be okay. Um, this person just shot in the arm, they're going to be okay. So, so you have to, and what I would do would get a patient sticker, put it on my list, write, you know, just extremely cursory note, okay, OR, stable, you know, to the CT scan or whatever, and, and then, and then, and then repeat that and go and reevaluate. And, you know, that's basically what I did for, you know, three or four, three or four hours. And, and I feel like I've seen some photos of, of you guys with those stickers sort of mm -hmm, attached yeah, to your yeah. leg there. That's where I started, yeah. Um, and, then I, and then I got me some sheets. I still have those sheets in my, in my office. So. One resource stretched during all of this, blood. During trauma situations, you don't have time to match the blood type like you would for a scheduled surgery so you have to use universal donor blood. Lourdes Miller works with a blood bank inside Orlando Regional Medical Center. She remembers getting on the phone with One Blood, the bank that supplies their blood products. And then I said to her, um, just to let you know, this is a, uh, something major. This is actually a mass casualty. This is not a drill. We don't know how many victims are we going to be getting, so whoever you need to wake up, whoever you need to inform about this situation, please do, because we are going to be this for a long haul. At one point, the ER called up to the blood bank and said, bring everything. There's actually a refrigerator in the ER stocked with blood for trauma patients. And usually when they're used, the blood bank restocks them four units at a time sent from the blood bank to the ER by a tube system. We just say, okay, no, let's just do it by buckets. And uh, we start doing 12 at a time. And they were packed with ice and things like that and sent down instead of being tube to the emergency room. They were actually people coming over and grabbing the buckets of blood that we have already dispensed. 
They would take buckets from the blood bank, pack them with ice, and bring them down to the ER by hand. And it was a lot of blood. We had a total of products done. It was about 400 uh, or so, 400 and something. I can't remember the number at the top of my head right now, sorry. 441 units of blood were given to Pulse patients on June 12th. To give that a little context, you sitting there have somewhere between 8 to 12 units of blood coursing through your veins. That means they used enough blood to fill 36 to 55 people. In one shooting victim alone, a single victim got 214 units of blood, or enough blood to refill 17 to 26 adults. Miller says even though you never get to see a patient while you're working in the blood bank, you do get emotionally attached, and they remember that one patient. On that patient, when I was coming back in, he was going back again to the OR, and, and just hearing that, oh, we're going to start back again with this one, and, and they said, and I'm like, oh, okay, okay. So I'm, in my head, I'm thinking to myself, okay, that person is still fighting, it's still here. We're still helping out. It's going to make it. It's going to make it. It's good, good, you know, and that just makes you feel good that you're still having given them a chance to, to continue and doing the best we can to get that person better and going out with their families. If you talk to enough of the workers at ORMC that night, one word comes up over and over again. Such a, just such chaos going on. Chaos. That's Nurse Liz Burrows again, talking with her co-worker Libby Brown. You keep using the word, but that's really what it was. But we work, in, we work under like constant chaos, but it was just a different kind of, it was just completely different because there was, you didn't know what was going to happen next kind of thing. It felt like, you know, we were working so hard, but it felt like we were still just kind of like so helpless because there wasn't enough hands and there weren't, you know, enough doctors. And and we did the best, absolute best that we could, but it still felt like you just felt very helpless because we were just so inundated so quickly trying to reorganize and, and make sure everything was done and, you know, make sure you were doing everything possible for the patients that did come in that were alive. At this point, the ER was running out of resources. I just remember looking at other nurses and like, at this point, we like Liz said, we were just out of resources, just seeing nurses just standing at the top of the bed, just squeezing blood products into people. Cause we have pressure, you know, level one pressure machines that will push blood in faster. We have pressure bags that will help push blood in faster. But obviously those were all kind of being used utilized. Up, up. So you yeah. see nurses standing at the head of the bed, just squeezing blood into people. Yeah. Um, so you have nurses, you know, running upstairs banging on the blood bank door, you know, to go get more blood to bring down and that kind of thing. So once we got, you know, more critical patients stabilized and we were coming out looking at these other patients, we're like, this guy needs to come into the trauma room. He has, you know, a gunshot wound to the abdomen and he's been laying in the nurse's station for a while. We should probably check his vitals and bring him back in there. I mean, but it was just, it was out of necessity because of the level of injury and yeah. that kind of thing that we had with the patients. so Because it got to a point where you weren't even sure if you were helping. There was so much running around and so much chaos um, that we figured we'd start kind of triaging, reassessing patients. You know, they were triaged when they initially came in, um, put where we thought their care would best be suited. But there was so many coming at some point that there were people with gunshot wounds to the chest sitting in the hallway, you know, 
gaping wounds where they're, they're sitting on the floor because we don't have stretchers. So mm-hmm. we kind of systematically went through and started trying to figure out how could we best help these people. Um, and then at that point, you kind of like have tunnel vision. And one of the things you'd mentioned that I hadn't thought about, and I'm not sure if this is maybe more common than I, than I would think, but you'd mentioned that the, the patients who didn't make it were, were still there. Is that normal? I'm, I would imagine normally if someone's, you know, passed away that you know, you're getting the medical examiner and, you know, there's mm-hmm. a lot of, you know, things happening that aren't being able to be done right then. Yeah, well, I mean, and too, it was quick thinking as far as we've, we've got to figure out where to... Put the bodies. So they ended up taking them out to where our decon area is outside uh, the double doors. I mean, part of it, too, is thinking about the resources for the next batch of patients coming in. We were running out of stretchers. Yeah, you had to move people. So, I mean, as bad as you felt that we weren't doing this, it was it, what made the most sense for the situation, you know. So that was a little surreal, too. I remember, yes. like, a realization, too, when we were in the trauma room, when we had gotten to the point where it was more very beginning, very, like, militaristic style of triage, and we were running out of things, and we had a deceased patient, and Liz was like, I don't have a sheet to cover this patient up with. So I was like, this is really bad. Like, we don't even have, you know, enough to kind of, I mean, we ended up figuring something out, but I remember thinking, this is not a good thing. Yeah. So, I mean, that was like kind of surreal, as she would say, like, you know, we don't even have, we didn't have a sheet to cover up a patient that was deceased that was just going to go be lined up with the other bodies so it was that was one of the times that I was like this is very this is very very bad and if all that wasn't bad enough things managed to get worse hey now we got a second seat at OMC you may want to come on in the shooters at OMC coming up in just a second in this episode of life after pulse chapter two code silver at Orlando Regional Medical Center stay with us Chapter 2, Code Silver in the ER. No one is exactly sure why the call happened. Maybe someone heard the shots being fired three blocks down the road and thought it was happening at the hospital. Maybe one of the patients panicked. Regardless of why it happened, at 3.19 a.m., the call came out. There was a shooter inside the ER at Orlando Regional Medical Center. Officer James Highland had been cleared to get out of the club by the SWAT team. He was standing by the black F-150 when that call came out that shots had been fired at Orlando Regional Medical Center. And then that's when I heard over the radio that there was shots fired at the hospital down the street. Instinctively, I threw whatever I had in my hand inside the truck, don't know where it landed at, jumped in, waited for people to sort of jump in. Uh, I know somebody jumped in the passenger side and there was people in the bed of my truck. I honestly didn't even look in my rear view mirror or my side view mirror to see if they were set in there. I just took off. There's somebody who was trying to get up in the truck and I just sort of left them in the dust. In the body cam video, it takes Highland less than a minute to get to the hospital. Police approach on foot and see two people running away from them. Who are they? Who are they? Who are they? Where'd he go? Go, 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 go. Where? Watch those corners! Watch it, watch it! Go! 
Who the f is running? Things calm down a little bit, but police officers begin following a trail of blood. I need to, I need to get to him because we're following his blood trail. We don't know if it's a bad guy or not. So we need, I need you to tell me where he's at because we need to go see him. As police are walking through the halls with their guns drawn, you can see healthcare workers walking the halls as well. Eventually, the blood trail leads them to the sixth floor. has been shot in the foot. He has a chin beard, like Omar Mateen, which is enough for police to keep him handcuffed while he's being treated. Dr. Gary Parrish is the medical director of the ORMC ER. I think you have to understand that um, we knew that there was a tremendous amount of violence going on very close to our department. And um, it is not unusual for violence and uh, gunmen to make their way to healthcare facilities, hospitals. And furthermore, in hospitals, it tends to be emergency departments where active shooter situations will tend to occur. I personally uh, tried to stay in an area where I could see down several hallways, um, you know, should there be a shooter in the department. And within moments after this um, being called, law enforcement arrived on the scene at the hospital and that's of course stressed their resources because they're at the scene a couple blocks away uh, trying to work there and now they have to come to the hospital to try to manage this situation too. With rifles drawn, police officers flooded Orlando Regional Medical Center to clear it. Dr. Michael Cheatham. There was concern on the part of law enforcement that uh, perhaps uh, one of the shooters um, had actually arrived at the hospital as a victim. At one point, they actually thought they had identified a second shooter, and they, they knew who it was in the hospital. They were trying to find him. So we found ourselves um, basically uh, filled with uh, assault weapon carrying uh, SWAT officers and uh, police and sheriff's deputies going from room to room, guns drawn, trying to find uh, the shooter. Nurses Liz Burrows and Libby Brown again. If you ask me what the worst part of the night was, it was that, that moment. Because yeah. it, it kind of puts everything into perspective. Um, but I think it was at some point when we saw commotion with, there was police officers coming in with guns drawn, and they were telling us to hide. There's a bit of irony here, too. Both nurses had been made to watch a video on what to do during an active shooter situation, and neither of them did what the video told them to do. Well, I remember us looking for each other. Yeah, because Liz was on the other side, and I screamed her name because I was like, oh, my gosh. Like, I guess for some reason in my head, okay, maybe she didn't hear this large page overhead, <laughs> but there is an active shooter. I saw the cops before I heard anything overhead. Oh, I didn't. I, thought, I just heard that overhead, and I was like, so I screamed for Liz. Libby hid in a patient's room. I remember how scared I was being in there 
like when I went into the patient's room before Liz got in there, like I shut the door and then I just remember being in there by myself and the patient, he was kind of like half awake, half asleep. Half intoxicated. Half intoxicated. Um, speaking only Spanish. I'm trying with my limited Spanish to get him to calm down. Um, and then I'm sitting there and I'm like, I'm all by myself. Like, I was like really scared. It was I, scary. Yeah, I wanted somebody else in there. So I was yeah. so glad when Liz like came to the door. I was like, yes, yes, please come in here with me. I was afraid to be alone. Yeah. So that's not, we, so I ended up running into her room. Um, we hid in a patient's room mm-hmm. and we just waited there and we're very fortunate to work with um, someone who used to be a, an army ranger. Yeah. Um, military, so. Just very skilled in tactical thinking, very quick on his feet. And I know when we opened the blinds, there he was. And we opened the door because it kind of seemed like, oh, it's calming down a little. Can we come out? And he said, just stay in there. And that's and when I got scared, too, is because he said to stay. And I was like, oh, no. I just felt safer knowing he was there. Yeah. So we were hugging each other, kind of trying to talk, you know, yeah. talk each other off the the, the ledge. This is yeah. going to be okay. But um, that was a very surreal moment. Over in the trauma bay, Dr. Michael Cheatham had an idea. I told everybody to go ahead and barricade the doors. We have big portable x-ray machines that probably weigh hundreds of pounds. Um, and so we pushed those up against the doors uh, to block them. And I said, okay, let's get back to the patients. I'm trying to think how you would describe one of these things. Here's Dr. Josh Corsa again. It's really just a large rolling box, probably about three feet by two feet. It weighs a ton. Um, it's got its own motor in it for pushing around. And it's certainly not something you're going to force out of the way with any human. That would probably take a bobcat or a bulldozer to move that thing. Now, we should be perfectly clear here. There was no shooter at Orlando Regional Medical Center, but in that moment, people working there didn't know that. I mean, yeah, I was thinking I could get shot, but I'm going to continue to care for these people, and we're going to do what we can. Dr. Chad Smith again. And I really had thought about I mean, I thought about I, I, I want to say that happened in maybe half a second. I, I thought about my wife. I thought about my kids. I thought about God. I thought about, well, if this is it, this is it, but I'm not going to leave these people. And Smith wasn't the only one who thought about loved ones in that moment. I, I remember seeing people maybe texting their, their loved ones. Um, I remember specifically thinking, you know, I texted my my partners, don't come to the emergency department, because I remember thinking, oh my gosh, there's somebody here with a gun. I've called them all here. And now I'm going to be responsible for, for potentially them, you know, getting shot. So, um, I mean, that w- I want to say that lasted 30 or 40 minutes, I think, if you, if you go by the timeline. Um, you know, it seemed quick, and then also it seemed, it seemed slow because you're, you're really thinking about that. And ultimately, it turned out that that's not the case, but that still it doesn't take away those kind of feelings that I think everybody has had. That's, that is what's been the most kind of difficult, um, I think, for most of the team members. Smith says caregivers have an obligation in moments like this. I mean, you, you literally think a bullet could come through that door right now and you'd be dead. But, and, of course, for the, for the people that we're caring for, that did happen, right? Um, but, I mean, you know, as a caregiver, I think you're obligated to, you know, you, you, you can't just abandon your patients because, and nobody did. I mean, you know, you're obligated to, to care for the people that can't care for themselves. And 
you know, if you become one of those people in that stead, then, I mean, I guess that's a, a risk of your, you know, that you, that you take. Having the door barricaded shut did pose some problems. They couldn't get patients in and out of the trauma bay. You know, I tell the story of one of our interns that took a patient to the operating room during the code silver, and this patient was dying, and she rolled the patient out there, you know, and, and did her job to take the patient to the operating room thinking that she could be shot, you know, and not just in, in the trauma bay, but rolling down the hall, into the elevator, et cetera. And that's just one story among many. Dr. Michael Cheatham again. I was amazed by how many of our team members uh, literally um, came out of the rooms that they had originally been told to barricade in and went back to taking care of patients. Uh, and I was very proud of everybody for doing that. They, they put you know, all the victims ahead of their own safety. You know, we didn't know whether as we turned a corner there would be a gunman there, but we knew that we had victims that needed to be cared for. Like so many things about Pulse, the ripples from this incident reverberate outside the core group affected. Take nurse Libby Brown. Remember, her husband's the firefighter working that night. He texted her there had been a shooting and that they were about to get busy. And, and it occurred to me, too, that, you know, with your husband being in fire rescue, I mean, did he know that there was a call for this? Was Yes, and he was, he was actually at the scene of Pulse um, when it went over the police tag that there was an active shooter at RMC. So I get all, I look like after, and I mean, I, I, during the whole situation, I didn't look at my phone like the entire time. And then that morning I look at it, there's like 10 texts, get out of there, there's an active shooter, you've got to get out, you've got to get out of there. And I'm like, oh, like, should have brought <laughs> So he was very, he was very scared. It took nearly 45 minutes to make sure the entire hospital was clear. At this point, Omar Mateen had told police he had bombs and that he was planning to strap them to the victims. The decision was made to breach Pulse nightclub. In my head, it was registering as, holy crap, that's, that's bad. Like, there's just a bullet hole right in the middle. Coming up in just a second in this episode of Life After Pulse, a breach and a second round of patience. Stay with us. Chapter 3, Round 2 of Pulse Patients. After the insanity of the first flood of patients to Orlando Regional Medical Center, and after the active shooter threat was cleared by police, there was a bit of a lull. Well, a comparative lull. This call came to the ER right around 4 a.m. Good morning, Warm State Emergency Room. Michelle speaking. Hi, it's Orlando Fire Department. Um, can you please give us a patient count at this moment um, who came in? We don't have it. We don't have it. We don't have it. Okay, anything that you guys can give us at this moment? I don't have anything right now. It's chaos right now. I have nothing right now. By lull, I mean there weren't new patients coming in. Here's Dr. Josh Corsa. We're still caring for all these patients. There was a lull of new patients coming in, and that gave us a chance to restock, restock blood, restock equipment, clean out the trauma bay, things like that. So we were still actively caring for a number of patients, of course, but it did give us a chance to clean out a resuscitation area and get ready for at the time what was anticipated to be another 40 victims. At this time, no one knew exactly how bad things were inside the club, but ORMC had gotten word that Mateen said he had bombs, and that posed another problem. Eric Alberts is Orlando House Director of Emergency Preparedness. Uh, because we had heard, you know, potential for bombs, 
uh, in several different locations. So at that point, when I heard that, I started uh, talking to our folks about thinking of the burn blast, uh, bomb burn blast injuries that may come with patients from pulse, as opposed to the gunshot wound patients, which are the, the injuries or the wounds, which are much different uh, for the human body. We're going to leave the hospital for a few minutes and go back to Pulse. When we last talked with Amanda Grau, she was locked inside the restroom at Pulse with the shooter. She'd been in contact by text message with police and with her family. I mean, it's three hours. Do you, do you have like a, a sense of time while this is going on? That No, I just knew I was there for a long, long time. And I was just kept wondering, why is it taking so long? Why is it taking so long? I was giving them specific, you know, ways to try to come in, you know, either through the front or come around or whatever you guys got to do. And I was giving them, you know, specific directions where we were. And I just didn't understand at that time why was it taking so long. But I guess they were taking precautions and stuff like that from what I was told. Um, but, yeah, you... When you're in that situation, it seems like the walls are closing in and everything is just getting dimmer and dimmer and that, that there is no white light at the tunnel at that point. So, I mean, did, did you, because they obviously had let the other police know before they were going to breach, did they let you guys know too because they were in contact with you that, hey, we are going to breach or did you have any warning? No. Okay. I had no idea. Um we did we ended up hearing a blast and it was um the other bathroom that was across from us and we all thought it was him that did it because like i said he was on the phone saying that he had bombs and stuff like that and that he was going to let it go off in 15 minutes so when we heard that we were all crying and telling him no no please please don't do this don't do this anymore um so then after we had said that, I want to say maybe five, ten minutes later, that's when we heard the explosion and we started crying again because we thought it was him that was doing it. And then at that point, after that, he kicked open our door again and shot around one last time. To every, I, I didn't get hit. Um, the, one of the girls in front of me got hit. Um, and I think he kind of just got, like, the walls and stuff like that from you know just shooting around and then all of a sudden we hear yelling and shooting and then a blast came from our bathroom and then that's when we hear it's police and stuff like that and to come and save us and we're all yelling to we're in here help us and crying and then that's when they told us that they ended up shooting him a bunch of times and that he was dead because we were trying to tell him that he you know went that way you know and they told us not to worry that he was that he was gone. How how exactly did you get transported to the hospital to to get the care? Um, once they blasted a hole um, through the bathroom wall, um, God, there was water everywhere, uh, blood everywhere. There was um, I want to say like um, the bathroom stall was like falling apart from them blasting, and you could see concrete everywhere. So we had. Um, the police in there and I want to say maybe re rescue people as well um, they had went through the hole and they were telling us to uh, get up and come through the hole that they were gonna pull us out out of the hole and when it came time for me I told him I, I can't stand I can't I can't get up you know I told him where I was shot at and they had told me um, to try to crawl 
So I, I said, I can't, I can't crawl. I said, because my arm. And so what I ended up doing, I, on my left side, I ended up pushing up as much as I could. And one of the guys helped me. And I ended up just hopping towards the, uh, on my left leg, hopping towards the wall. And at that point, that's when they told me to stick my head out. And I had to put my, my arms out and they ended up pulling out my arm and of course screaming at the same time because they were pulling on my bad arm but the hole was only so big that they blasted for us to fit through so as soon as they pulled me out they had they had me and they put me right on a stretcher right away and, and put me in an ambulance and we were I was I was there less than a minute to Orlando Hospital um you know kind of walk me through what it's like when you get you know to the hospital itself and the area there and, and what the scene's like there well, as soon as they put me into the ambulance, um, they started cutting up my clothes because they needed to know. Uh, they had asked me where I was shot at, and I had told them, and they wanted to see how severe it was. So they ended up cutting all my clothes off and to see where everything was. And as soon as we got there, I went through the back, and I guess it was the ER room I was in. And all you can see is people running around trying to um, help everybody because there were so many of us that had, was coming through, and it was just like clockwork. Uh, one after another so then at that point um, they were starting to give me um, IVs they were checking my wounds um, checking to see if I had any um, shots on my head because my head was full of blood and um, I kept telling them no I you know I, I wasn't hit in the head and they also had to um, they saw that I've lost some blood so they had to give me um, two pints of blood and then at that point after uh, they had checked me out. They had um, taken me to get um, x-rays and MRIs and stuff like that because they wanted to see the damage and stuff and make sure no bones or anything were broken at that point. And then after that, they had um, wrapped me up, and um, I, had to, I had to wait in a room until my family and my fiancé had came in later on. So. Now, you mentioned, you know, you were in the room, you know, waiting for uh, your fiance and your family that had driven over from Tampa, you know, mm -hmm. when were they able to actually come and see you? Um, from what I was told, um, they were outside of Pulse at that time, um, and they were hearing everything uh, from what I was told. Um, my fiance, especially, uh, she, her and her friend got there real quick, and um, they can hear the gunshots and everything. Um, from what I was told, and so came my mom and my dad and my brother, and they didn't know what to expect, what to think, because once I was rescued, I wasn't using my phone or anything at that time, so nobody knew how I was or even if I was still alive at that point. So um, once they got done treating me and doing what they needed to do with the x-rays and giving me blood and everything and also oxygen because I couldn't breathe, because later on I found out that um, I had a collapsed lung and blood was... Uh, fluid was getting into my lung. It was blood that was filling up my lungs, so I had to end up getting a chest tube also later on. So, um, but by the time I got there, I, I want to say they probably didn't see me. It was morning time. Um, gosh, probably maybe 6, 7 o'clock in the morning is when they finally let them to come and see me because um, from what I was told, of course, I was kind of disoriented because you know everything that was happening being shocked and being rescued and not knowing you know if I was going to need surgery or if I was going to make it or anything so I was told that I 
I was uh, screaming for my mom and for my girlfriend as well uh, to come and see me and that I needed her and so they ended up getting my mom first and to try to calm me down and I just kept telling her you know you know he's coming he's coming and other people are coming we're not safe we're not safe you know we need to go you know and she kept trying to call me down and tell me you know you're safe you're in a hospital they're on lockdown nothing's gonna happen he's gone they already shot him and they were just saying that I kept saying that to them and um, then she ended up she was allowed to go get my dad and my brother and, and my fiance to come back and see me police shot and killed Omar Mateen but not before he shot one of the SWAT officers Officer James Hyland, the man with the black F-150, was near the club when he heard SWAT was about to detonate explosives and go in after Mateen. We held cover, and then we heard the volley of gunfire. And then at some point, somebody said there was an officer that was hit. So I remember seeing a group of officers. They were just grabbing backboards, and they were running across the street. I had my truck there. I'm like, nope, get in the truck, go there, you know, the truck pulled up, somebody said, hey, Officer Highland, his truck's out here, let's load the officer up, which happened to be Officer Napolitano, which was one of our SWAT guys. Officers loaded up their injured co-worker in the black F-150 and took him to Orlando Regional Medical Center. I tried to avoid having tunnel vision while I was driving, but this was probably the worst case of tunnel vision I saw. I just saw, I didn't, I wasn't paying attention to what was on the sides of the road. I was looking at just the roadway and I saw people on the middle of the road and I was just laying on my, my siren. And at one point I grabbed my hand microphone, I was screaming into my PA, the PA is already loud enough as it is. And I was screaming as loud as I could for people just to get out of the way, get out of the way, get out of the way. And then once we got Officer Napolitano up into the ER bay, um, just the sight of pulling up in there, there was, man, there was at least 10 doctors out there just waiting. And we pulled up and we extracted them off the back of the truck and another officer that was out there, he just showed me the helmet. If you spent any time on social media after the shooting, you probably saw SWAT officer Michael Napolitano's green Kevlar helmet. You can clearly see where the bullet hit. My reaction was just, it was just blank. Like, in my head it was registering as, holy crap, that's, that's bad. Like, there's just a bullet hole right in the middle. Napolitano is fine. He escaped with just some cuts and bruises. You might even call it a miracle. Dr. Chad Smith says God played a role that night. You know, there's so many times, and if, you, if you've if you seen the video, you know, Carlos Carrasco talks about there being grace. I mean, it happened in June when the residents were, you know, had already had a year of training or, or however many, you know. Um, you know, I, people happened to answer the phone in the middle of the night when I'm just trying to get a hold of them. You know, uh, you know, people, you know, the right people just happened to be where they needed to be. It, you know, I, I think I think God had a hand in that. I do. Officer Joe Imbergio remembers the breach differently than most. Imbergio, who'd been driving the F-150 turned ambulance earlier in the night, had a dead radio. So he had no warning that the breach was coming, but he did know that Omar Martin said he had bombs. I had no idea about the breach to try to go through the concrete wall with the, you know, the controlled explosive. So I was just south of the Dunkin' Donuts when I heard that go off, and I thought I lost half of my friends because I didn't hear prepare for breach. Or I was like, oh, my God. So I ran back over there, and everybody is still alive, and they're behind the Dunkin' Donuts, you know, okay. So that sticks with me quite a bit. 
Officers brought the truck back to Pulse to see if anyone else needed transport, but the second wave of patients was much smaller than the first. Just six patients were brought to Orlando Regional Medical Center. The death toll was 49 victims. Still to come in this episode of Life After Pulse, just three months before the shooting, hospitals, police, and first responders trained for a mass shooting. But one thing they didn't plan on? I could hear the screaming and the blood-curdling screaming every time they would tell pull someone into another room next to my office and tell them that they were dead. They didn't plan on 250 friends and family members showing up to ORMC in the middle of the night looking for their loved ones. This episode of Life After Pulse continues in just a second. Stay with us. Chapter 4, But What About Mine? Holly Stewart is the Director of Patient Experience for Orlando Health. That means it's her job to make your stay at the hospital more pleasant, a difficult job normally, an impossible task June 12th. When she got to the hospital that morning, she saw something unusual. And you could see a crowd of people being held outside. The hospital was under lockdown. And there were, you know, it looked like hundreds of people um, waiting outside, and um, um, I, I remember thinking that was unusual. Um, I think the more unusual thing to me was I walked by the front desk where normally we would have a guest service team member there um, managing it, and there was a um, law enforcement officer I didn't recognize, um, and he was dressed in SWAT gear, and he had a really um, intimidating-looking machine gun. Um, I don't know guns well, but it was not your typical thing that you see in the hospital. And so I knew right then that it was gonna be in a really unusual day. And it wasn't just friends and family looking for victims. At this point, none of the names had been released. And so government consuls all around the world starting contacting Orlando Health to try and see if any of their citizens were inside the club. Eric Alberts is Orlando Health's Director of Emergency Preparedness. Lots of them, British, Columbia, um, you name it, the list goes on and on and on. So we were getting inquiries from them. They were showing up to the hospital demanding patient lists and names. And, you know, we just, due to HIPAA requirements, we can't just give that out to anybody. So we were really protective and restrictive with that list. And um, that did pose some problems for them. Orlando Health officials decided to bring all the family members into the hospital into a big conference room. Stuart remembers what the room was like. Um, it is, um, it is tense. Um, you know, people have been woken up in the middle of the night. They, um, um, you know, some people had been at the club, um, and so they were in, you know, um, a variety of dress, you know, dress because of it. I mean, some people had taken off their shirts to make tourniquets and things like that. So there were, you know, it was, it was an unusual-looking crowd. Many of the patients who came into the hospital were able to identify themselves, but many of the patients were on breathing machines and couldn't speak. One of the first things they did to identify patients was put an email address up in the room. They asked friends and family to send photos of their loved ones. Those emails flooded Amy DeYoung's inbox. She spent that day printing photos out and walking around the ER with the pictures and information, trying to match up patients. I found it difficult to even think about stopping because the emails weren't stopping. It was over 300 emails. And I felt like any second that I stop and I don't print these and take them to the cops is another minute this person is in total anguish. 
I could hear the screaming and the blood curdling screaming every time they would tell pull someone into another room next to my office and tell them that they were dead. And I you just never forget that sound. It is horrible. I mean, it's um you know, it's just it's one of those things that just never I don't know that it'll ever leave my mind that sound. Um just wrenching and to see someone on their hands and knees telling us, you know, you're lying. There's no way he's dead. And um yeah, you just you plow through it because you think I got one of these is going to be alive, and I'm going to give somebody some good news. You know, and there were a couple where I could say, "They're here. I can't tell you anything, but please call the front desk." You know, and um, those were the good ones I could kind of check off the list and say, um, "We saved this one." But as the morning wore on, the reality of the shooting became apparent. I at one point walked in the emergency room with a stack of photographs and heard one officer say to another one. They just breached the building, and there's more bodies. And they said, I think there's over 30. When I heard that, I realized that I was probably holding photographs of people that were gone. And um, I'm sorry. sorry. I didn't have a response for those people that were freaking out, you know, that were um, really scared and looking for, you know, their father, their husbands, their wives, their mom. Um, that was a tough one. Law enforcement wasn't keen to tell families who was in the hospital because it was an active investigation. Holly Stewart again. We uh, we really pushed the fact that we need to tell people who we've got here. They told law enforcement that come 11 a.m., they were going to start telling family members who was inside the hospital. So Dr. Joseph Ibrahim, one of the trauma surgeons, stood in front of the crowd in the family room and began reading the names. Frederick Johnson. He is stable. Felipe Sanchez, critical. Michael Morales, stable. Jose Diaz Ubiles, uh, stable. Elmer Pacheco, stable. You can hear the emotion. You can hear the emotion of someone hearing a name that they've been waiting several hours to hear, but it may be connected with a condition that they don't want to hear because we actually said whether they were in critical, guarded, or good condition. And um, so you hear all of those emotions, and you'll hear all the cell phones going off in the background, too. Elka Reyes, critical. Paula Blanco. Stable. Jose F. Martinez, critical. Angela Cologne, stable. Um, logistically, what we did was he read two lists. He read a list of patients who were doing well at Florida Hospital with just the names. And then he read the list and the conditions of the people that we had. And we actually said to the people in the room, if you heard a name at Florida Hospital, go to that corner. If you heard a name in good condition, go to that guarded, critical. And then the clinical teams took them, took those people away. And that's, I think, when it hit everyone, how many people we were dealing with that um, were going to be getting really, really bad news. We let them know that we still had several to identify. Um, you know, in the back of my mind, I knew that we only had four, but we still probably had a hundred people in the room. 
and um, you could you could see them kind of um, start processing the reality of it. Okay, you know it's been six or seven hours. Um, they've read the list of who they know they have. I haven't heard from my person, but I I, I, I can. You know, I can remember them staring back at us like, what about, what about mine? By afternoon, they moved the families to a Hampton Inn near the hospital campus. Dr. Jamal Hakeem was tasked with reading another list of names. He's standing on a chair, reading to a room full of people packed shoulder to shoulder. It looks hot in the video, and the people are noticeably frustrated. So that's just a list of folks who are doing well Florida Hospital. Off camera, a woman faints. Guys, have a clear pass, they come in. By evening time, the first batch of names of people who died became public. Amy DeYoung remembers she was getting text messages from the godmother of one of the victims all day. The next morning, she saw his name on CNN, listed among the dead. Jane Tomlinson was his name, and he was on the screen. I saw his name, and I thought, man, what do I just not respond now and say, okay, well, I guess she knows. I couldn't, you know, I, I immediately sent her a text message, and I said, Cheryl, I am so sorry. I just saw Shane's name. We've remained friends. Actually, I gained a really good friend out of this. She's an amazing person. Okay. Talk about resilience. Wow. Um, she is. She's told me a lot about him. He actually he's on YouTube. He's got. He's. It was a fantastic singer. He had a quite a following, and um, I mean, I uh, got a great friendship out of this. She's actually really taught me a lot about you know, uh, being strong. Coming up on this episode of Life After Pulse. How to train for the next disaster and what we can learn from the pulse shooting. Stay with us. We'll be back in a second. Chapter 5, Preparing for the Next Pulse. On March 10, 2016, 57 agencies, 15 hospitals, and 533 volunteer victims drilled for an active shooter at a middle school. They even drilled that they got the shooter as a victim at the hospital. That means just three months before the shooting, they drilled on something eerily similar to what actually happened. Eric Alberts is Orlando Health's Director of Emergency Preparedness. When you have a situation like the Pulse, um, and having had that exercise, we actually had a lot of people that told me either by email, text, or in person that having that exercise ahead of time helped save a lot of lives that morning. So how do you plan for a mass shooting or a plane crash or a bomb? I wanted to see what the training looked like, so I tagged along during this year's training. Good morning, everybody. Good morning. Thanks for being here today. What classes are we missing right now? All of them. All right, that's a good answer. Woo! <laughs> All right, so here's what we got. My name is Ari, and I'm going to be helping uh, run this exercise this morning. So what we've had happen uh, is there has been a, uh, an explosion, obviously, 
and you guys are the victims that were gathered around before it happened. We're going to have crews of fire guys coming in to do what we call triage and transport. So when they come, what they're going to do is they're going to sort you by these color codes. They're also going to have to decon you. Everybody ready to get wet this morning? Yes, sir. All right. Now, I'm not the guy who's making that weather call, but if it's made, it's going to be wet. So this is a field. Uh, it's pretty much wide open. There's no irrigation, uh, basically no trees except at the perimeter. And you've got volunteers in these pink shirts. Uh, many of them are actually wearing makeup and prosthetics to simulate being wounded in a bomb. And the scenario that they're working on is that a uh, right-wing extreme group um, bombed four courthouses. And so this open field right now is to simulate the courthouse itself. Um, that way they can actually drive the vehicles up onto it and there won't be any damage to uh, you know, any of the irrigation or anything like that. I meet Jason Taylor, an emergency management specialist with Orange County. He goes over the exercise plan with me. In this scenario, a group called Americans for an Armed Society has been making threatening statements in news interviews. They're upset about new proposed gun regulations. Meanwhile, in Georgia, a shipment of Cobalt 60 has gone missing, and intelligence groups think it could be headed to Florida. Americans for an Armed Society has been gathering support with several local biker gangs, and some of the rallies have turned violent in recent weeks. One of those arrested threatened that something big would happen soon. And that brings us to today in this fictional exercise. Four courthouses in four separate counties are simultaneously hit with dirty bombs. Yes, and in fact there is a radiological component. Uh, as part of the artificialities, we've actually provided uh, Coleman lantern mantles. So when you have a propane, um, a propane lantern, the, uh, what, where the light source is, what actually is contained, contains the propane, has a very slight radioactive signature. So we gave out a handful of those to various uh, uh, volunteer victims um, so that as they're going through the hospital emergency room process, they're actually being screened um, for that process, for ra any radiological material, because then you have contamination of an emergency room, and then that leads to other issues down the line. So they should be detecting that information. It has a very, very slight uh, radioactivity, but it's enough to trip any detectors. First responders break out special equipment to test the victims for radiation. So you've got four guys uh, with the Orange County Fire Department with black briefcases. They pull the, um, out of these black briefcases, uh, they're little boxes, they actually look like um, the traps from Ghostbusters. Uh, they're powering them up, putting batteries in, hooking them up to what looks like uh, a microphone. And these are what they're gonna be using to uh, check for radiation for this uh, scenario with a, a simulated dirty bomb. And they're, they're putting on um, the uh, gas mask now as well. So they're getting uh, completely suited up to, uh, in this case, go into uh, what would be the Orange County Courthouse, um, you know, where a potential dirty bomb has gone off. Like I said, if they're walking wounded, listen up, guys. If they're walking wounded, put their dirty. Put them to that side. If they're clean, put them to this side, okay? If they can't move and they're dirty, Leave them there first, we'll, we'll deal with that when we can. And if they're clean, like I said, but just separate them first, okay? Walking wounded. First responders walk out into the field and begin checking on the survivors. Can you walk it up? No. 
It's in my head. Jared's gonna take these three. They're walking wounded. He's gonna take them to the decon. You and I are gonna go out and pluck one on the on the stretcher and take them. They take one of the contaminated victims and put her on a stretcher and bring her to a fire truck to be decontaminated. They bring the patient on a stretcher uh, down to the decontamination scene, which is essentially a fire truck hooked up to a hydrant, and then it has uh, a specialized um, contraption coming out with three sprays. And they're using this, um, they use the spray to actually uh, decontaminate the patients as they're coming through. Uh, so they're literally taking the volunteers and then walking them through it. My name's Abe. I'm a reporter with the local NPR station. I was kind of following you the whole way. Yeah, I saw you. Are you interested in being interviewed? Yes. What's your name? Hannah Kaufman. So uh, tell me a little bit about the scenario there. They uh, they had you marked up as uh, contaminated. Yes, they marked me as contaminated. They came through with a, I'm not sure what it was, but something to test the radioactivity. And they uh, put me up on the stretcher and locked me in and walked me through the hoses. It was a lot colder than I expected it to be. <laughs> so uh, when you signed up for the simulation, were you expecting that? <laughs> um, I knew that there was going to be like a washing down, but I was more thinking we were, he showed us, uh, my teacher showed us pictures of like people in little kiddie pools getting like sprayed down with a hose. I wasn't expecting to be like on a stretcher actually walked through like a recontaminated thing. We all have like radioactive uh, pouches how on they us. did that. So you have little pouches? Yeah, we have it somewhere on our body. We can't tell them where it is and they have to find it themselves. It's definitely possible that after Pulse, people are taking training drills like this more seriously. In 2016, 57 agencies, 15 hospitals, and 533 people volunteered as victims. A year later, it was 80 agencies and 1,200 volunteer victims. That made it the largest training drill in Florida's history. Coming up in this episode of Life After Pulse. And so I just don't feel it's my right anymore to stand back and not admit it if someone wants to ask or was to say, hey, or, oh, you're married? What's his name? Oh, no, her name is Carla. It's my wife. How polls change people and what we can learn from it. Stay with us. We'll be back in a second. Chapter 6 what we can learn from Pulse. 44 victims came to Orlando Regional Medical Center June 12. 36 came in in the first 36 minutes. Nine of them died. There were 28 surgeries done in the first 24 hours. The most common surgery was an exploratory laparotomy where the stomach is open to look for injuries. More than 17,000 surgical supplies were used. By the time the last patient was discharged 86 days later, 550 units of blood were given. So what lessons can be learned from inside the ER during the worst mass shooting in modern U.S. history? What has it changed? How has it changed people? On the day I spoke with Eric Alberts, the director of emergency preparedness at Orlando Health, he had a binder with him, a thick binder, two to three inches at least. Well, the binder is actually what we've learned since Pulse. Um, it includes personal notes, it includes our after-action report, it, it includes our corrective actions, it includes our PowerPoint that we do or show to other hospital organizations and community partners across the world and the United States. So this is kind of like the playbook, if you will, of what we learned from this situation. It's 51 pages and logs 66 areas where things can be improved at the hospital. There are plenty of lessons to be learned from Pulse. 
I think the, the, the being prepared for, for active shooter, being, you know, drilling for that, practicing for that. That's Dr. Chad Smith. But also to s sponsor or um, encourage an environment where your employees um, are empowered to do what they need to do, right? So if you have a team that every person on that team has to look to the team leader and and ask, okay, should I do this, should I do that? And they can't think independently and work cohesively. Um, that's not as effective as, you know, a leader that kind of sets the tone and expects their team to act independently, right? And have a culture of safety, of psychological safety, where they can, um, you know, think independently up to the level of their training or, or potentially even, you know, uh, you know, outside their scope, uh, if, if need be. This idea may need to be de-jargoned, so let's get some real-life examples from nurses Liz Burrows and Libby Brown. Uh, well, giving of the blood products. Yeah, we, we, didn't, we didn't wait to go run looking for doctors. This was, we knew they were bleeding. Mm -hmm. Their blood pressure's low. Um, they need blood. Mm -hmm. So give the blood. I know that I started handing pain medicine to patients. I started giving them pain medicine because they need it. And um, I'm not going to let them sit there and suffer. So uh, I know those for me were the things that I'm just like usually we Would ask, ask the doctor. Right, right. You're it just needed to be done mm -hmm. exactly. And most, I mean, and then after that, we were kind of going through and giving people antibiotics and you know tetanus shots and and it there's you know we were following within our protocols and that kind of thing, but we weren't checking with anybody or you know that kind of thing. Nurses were going independently with patients to CT that were you know unstable and things like that. We're normally we would have two, three doctors going with us, but there just wasn't enough. So, you know, luckily we have enough experienced nurses in the trauma room and we've seen enough that people f were able to take responsibility kind of for those patients and yeah. be confident that, you know, they could handle what was going on, you know, more independently. So, One area where the hospital learned a number of lessons, how to deal with the families that show up. Amy DeYoung, who worked during the shooting to try and identify victims, says one solution needs to be technological. It definitely more use of technology, and that's one of the things we're working on right now is how do we have a, a website for uploading photographs and a, a one single email address that's not someone's, uh, so, some individuals that can be pulled from nonstop and updated by the, by the community, and then we can update it internally and show and share with the uh, law enforcement. Her boss, Holly Stewart, says the hospital learned that the family room isn't just a place. When we have drilled for this in the past, the family room is really a geographic location and some creature comforts. We say, okay, we're going to put them in the North Tower lobby and we're going to put water and blankets in there. And we now know that there's a whole lot more to it. And so the counselors that I talked about, um, you know, we, we needed our chaplains, we needed grief counselors. We needed Spanish interpreters. Um, we needed medical attention. So be thinking about, you know, the emotional, psychological, and physical needs of the people that are in the room, not just the actual room and some creature comforts. You know, I think uh, one of the most visible changes to the hospital is, you know, the changes, and, and I imagine this would be something you have considered about in, in guest services. You know, when you come to the hospital now, you know, there are security guards, you have to go through a metal detector, you know, before you're able to come in, and, and that's, that's from Pulse. That's from Pulse, and it's um, 
part of the realization that um, public places like hospitals have to be more vigilant now than we did in the past. And I think, you know, from a guest perspective, people are accustomed to that now. I mean, you can't get on a plane like you used to be able to get on to. You can't go to a lot of places. You can't go to the arena without, you know, ensuring um, that, you know, we're keeping safe. Some of it, too, is the psychological safety for our team. Um, and, you know, um, a lot of effort has gone into making sure our team is okay. And um, that is clearly one of the things that they see every single day that reminds them that we're doing everything that we can to keep our team safe, too. Dr. Michael Cheatham says hospitals have to get ready for events like Pulse. Every hospital, small community hospitals, rural hospitals, big trauma centers, it doesn't matter. Orlando Regional Medical Center got most of the shooting victims. And that's not because they were the level one trauma center. They got them because they were three blocks away. We've been amazed as we have uh, spoken at conferences how many hospitals do not have a disaster plan. You just can't, in today's environment, with as many mass shootings as we've seen, you cannot not have a plan. And so that's the first thing, encouraging everyone to have a plan. The second thing that we have decided is going to be our, um, our emphasis is teaching the public uh, what we call stop the bleed. Stop the bleed is basically the same thing as teaching people CPR. If someone's bleeding, it teaches the basics until first responders make it to the scene. This is a national initiative. It actually was first proposed about a year ago, or about a year before uh, polls, um, and came out of the Sandy Hook massacre where uh, all the, the school children were killed. Orlando Health also got a crash course in mental health care for their own employees. They did critical incident debriefings, offered individual counseling sessions, and made chaplains available for employees. 1,200 employees have accessed these services. It strikes me that every single person I talked to had that moment when the adrenaline kicked off and they had to process what happened. For Amy DeYoung, who spent the day identifying victims, it was when she was all alone in her driveway. I remember pulling into my driveway and the sun was just going down and I had I lived in probably East Orlando for many, many years, but had probably lived uh, in my current location for maybe a year and a half, something like that. And it's out, it's literally out in the country, and so it's very quiet now. Um, when I opened my car door and I got out, and all I could hear were trees and through the wind and the uh, and birds, and that's just dead silence. And I, all I could think about was that's the silence. That's the silence of those lives that are gone, and I thought about... When I went home, there were people that still didn't know where their loved ones were, and they knew they weren't in the hospital. But there's this pray to God that are they that one that wasn't identified that's in our hospital? And I just felt horrible, absolutely horrible for those friends and family that were wandering and trying to go to sleep and sick to their stomachs. And um, I felt uh, safe where I was because I realized I was in the country and I was like, you know, I, I didn't realize how unsafe I felt in the city at that, at that moment, being there and being part of the LGBT community. You wonder, is this the beginning of something? Or was this an isolated incident? Um, and then you're just that, that, that feeling of, okay, I'm physically safe, but oh my God, these people, what have, what has just happened here? The experience changed her. I've never felt more safe in a public place than I have at my own job and the feeling of acceptance, and to see surgeons, and the first people to wear a rainbow ribbon on their chest was a heterosexual resident. 
And I asked someone the next morning, Where's that rain where are you getting that rainbow ribbon from? Oh, it's one of the residents. I couldn't believe it. Next thing I know, my my heterosexual <laughs> co-workers are cutting ribbons and wearing them. And um, it took me a couple of days to get comfortable to put that on. <laughs> uh, you know, that I I uh, I see them on Dr. Oz, the surgeons with their rainbow ribbons. They don't know. I don't know that anybody in that group really understands the impact they have on us when they wear those. It's a there's a feeling of no shame again and. Uh, safety and acceptance and love and I mean I could not be any more proud to be part of that group of individuals not just for the lives they saved but for the way they made the community feel afterwards um yeah very proud of them could you imagine something like this that kind of support when you were younger no absolutely not um no as a matter of fact I remember how small our parade used to be uh, the first time I went to an LGBT pride parade in downtown Orlando, I was faced with three KKK members and their white, whatever it is they wear. Um, and that was my reminder that there's some people that really hate you, Amy, and and there's violence out there. And at the time, you know, I didn't, uh, I think Matthew Shepard passed away shortly after that was his murder. And um, that's when I really started to realize people actually are being killed for when they're out in the open. Has it changed your outlook on, you know, anything political? Has it, have you changed how you view things or how you are advocating? Let me just say yes. I've never been an advocate. I've always kind of stuck around in the background. I'm a little more vocal. And I'm a little bit more apt to uh, stand up for myself in terms of that, the LGBT community and rights and explaining things to people just out of their own ignorance, not understanding something. I'm, I'm a little more apt to do that now. In the past, I would have stepped back a little bit in the background. And I, and I can tell you it's not for me. It's for them. They, their faces, those individuals, their 49 people's faces plastered together forever, all of eternity to say these folks died in an LGBT bar. And you know what? A handful of them are heterosexual. And they're grouped together with us. And I'm happy to say they're part of us, uh, that they were supportive of us that night. One of them was a mother and, and was there supporting her son. And so I just don't feel it's my right anymore to stand back and not admit it if someone wants to ask or was to say, hey, or, oh, you're married? What's his name? Oh, no, her name is Carla. That's my wife. <laughs> um, but I don't feel like I have the right to lie anymore. I think that's the biggest thing. For Dr. Josh Corsa, the moment he started processing what happened was when he came back to the hospital there. In the corner were his brand new pair of tennis shoes, soaked in blood. I spoke with Corsa less than a week after the shooting. I came in the next morning and they were just kind of sitting in the corner. And you know, that's, that's when a lot of the, the enormity of it kind of struck me. Just again, looking at that, as I said before, that, that tangible reminder. And you know, I just had to sit down and that's kind of what made me write it. And that's when Corsa put into writing what many people were thinking that week. These are my work shoes from Saturday night. They're brand new, not even a week old. I came to work this morning and saw these in the corner of my call room, next to the pile of dirty scrubs. I had forgotten about them until now. On these shoes, soaked between its fibers, is the blood of 54 innocent human beings. I don't know which were straight, which were gay, which were black, or which were Hispanic. What I do know is that they came to us in wave upon wave of suffering, screaming, and death. And somehow in that chaos, doctors, nurses, technicians, police, paramedics, and others performed superhuman feats of compassion and care. 
This blood which poured out of those patients and soaked through my scrubs and my shoes will stain me forever. In these Rorschach patterns of red, I will forever see their faces and the faces of those that gave everything they had in those dark hours. There is still an enormous amount of work to be done. Some of that work will never end. And while I work, I will continue to wear these shoes. <laughs> and when the last patient leaves our hospital, I will take them off. And I will keep these shoes. And I will keep them in my office. I want to see them in front of me every time I go to work. For on June 12th, after the worst of humanity reared its evil head, I saw the best of humanity come fighting right back. And I never want to forget that night. He didn't keep the shoes. They were donated to the History Center. I mean, has this impacted people's personal lives? Yes. I'm not sure how much I can say. Um, you can't help but go through this and all of the associated stress and drama and exposure to the world and everything else and not have it affect every aspect of your life, both professionally and personally. And I know that's affected some more than others, but there's been a lot of, a lot of personal upheaval in our lives, and that's unfortunately part and parcel with an incident like this. And some people, like Officer James Highland, got a helping hand when they had to process what happened at Pulse. Highland brought the black F-150 that was used as an ambulance back to the police station. He had to clean out the truck. And after everything that night, this, cleaning the truck, was the hardest thing to do. And I knew, I knew there was a bunch of stuff in the back of my truck. And I said, oh, I can't go home now. So what I did is I came back to the police station in the back here and I parked my truck back there, and there was another officer that was waiting back here. I wanted, I can't remember his name, but I'm ever thankful for him because he just saw the look on my face because what happened was we have a hose in the back. So once the tailgate was down, I started getting the trash out of there, and I was digging through all the stuff with my hands, like I still have my gloves on, and I was pulling you know, pieces of clothing out. I was pulling trash out of the back there. Um, and I noticed there was just blood stains on my back window, on the toolbox, just all inside the bed of the truck. So once I started hosing it, I just started seeing the red water, and then I just stopped. And this officer saw me, and he just pats me on the shoulder. He goes, hey, do you, do you need any help? And I said, yeah, I would definitely need some help. It took an entire bottle of industrial cleaner and a mop to get the truck clean. And at that point, I was like, I just I need to go home now. And then I uh, just got in my truck and... I think on the way home, it was a 45-minute drive, and I just turned my radio off just in complete silence because I think everything was just sort of starting to register with me at that point of what the seriousness of what happened. For the people inside the club, recovery is an interesting word. It seems so final. Are you recovered? Are you okay now? Surgeons will tell you that for many of the orthopedic injuries, you're looking at three years of surgery to repair the damage. But the absolute truth is, medically, Many of the victims will feel their wounds forever, physically and emotionally. We're going to let Amanda Growl have the last word in this podcast. Uh, as far as um, my right leg, um, it's, um, it's about that long. Um, kind of looks like road rash um, right now, so, um, which will be like that for the rest of my life, they told me. So, um, and it's like a, you know, like a square, a long, long square, I should say. And then as far as my arm, um, I try not to wear too many tank tops or anything because, you know, I kind of 
conscientious, I guess you could say about it. You know, I don't want people staring or pointing or anything, you know. Um, but um, as far as that goes, it's about medium size, about that big. And um, you can tell it's been worked on and stuff like that. So, But it's, it's healed nice. It's healed good. Um, they always told me if I want to go back because it is, since it is like a big patch underneath there, they told me I always could come back and... Um, redo surgery again where they can have um have it just having a line um you know it, it occurs to me too that this was not only something that was obviously very traumatic for you but it was very traumatic for your family for your partner um how are how is that dynamic kind of work as you kind of all had this shared trauma in a sense uh my parents um it, it took a toll on them, and it took a toll on my brother and my fiance. And then, um, actually, at that time, um, my kid, she was visiting her grandparents, so we kind of kept it from her a little bit. She didn't really know the whole story until it kind of spread like wildflower through the all, all through the news and everywhere. And then that's when she kind of called her mom and, and was asking, you know, hey, I, I see this, I see this all over Facebook, is Amanda okay? And, you know, and we had to explain to her, and, you know, I got on the phone with her and told her, you know, I'm going to be okay, and, you know, to put her mind at ease. And still not really going into too much details of my, um, the extent of my injuries, because I didn't want her to get scared or cry or anything, and I wanted her to have a good time, you know, with her grandparents, so. Now, you mentioned, you know, going to, to counseling and everything, and I'm, wondering how you're, I know it's kind of a stupid question, but, you know, how you're doing, you know, a little bit further out now. Uh, I take it day by day. Um, you know, I still have my good days and I have my bad days. Um, you know, I, sometimes I find myself um, going back to that day and just thinking, you know, what could I done differently? How could I, how could I save more people or how could I save my friend uh, that passed? And, you know, I just replay it over and over and there's just nothing that comes into play and nothing I could have done differently. I wish I could, but, um, uh, you know, and at night, um, there's times I still have nightmares and, um, you know, I, I hear things that, uh, that are not there. So, and, uh, when, when we're out, um, as a family walking around and I hear certain noises and stuff like that, I kind of get a little jumpy, you know, still. So I'm still trying to work on that. Um, you know, I, I, one of the survivors I had talked to had mentioned, you know, he had actually basically at this point flipped. You know, he used to be a, a wake up pretty early and be a mm -hmm. day shift guy. And he, after Pulse, he just couldn't sleep at night. So he just ended up being kind of a night shift person. Yeah. Is that something that, you know, you've had as well, where just night in particular? Yeah, when it first started, um, especially at the hospital, I wouldn't go to bed till like 3, 3.30 in the morning, and I would have to keep the light on because I was scared of the dark. And um, and even at my own home, too, when I finally got to go home, um, I had to had a little nightlight or, or the TV on, um, which my girlfriend understood. And I had that for a while, for a couple months. Um, now today, um, I can sleep with the light off and with the TV off. Um, do I go to bed at a normal time, 9, 10 o'clock, like normal people? No. <laughs> I find myself, I go to bed like at 12 or 12.30. So it has gotten a little bit better from the 3 o'clock or 3.30 going to bed. So, But like I said, it just it takes time, day by day. One day in particular is going to be harder than the others. On the anniversary of the shooting, Growl plans to go back to Pulse Nightclub for the first time. She wants to pay her respects to her friend that died that day. 
Find more of our Pulse coverage at our website, wmfe.org. And thank you to local artist Ishmael Perez for the music. It's his piano interpretation of the song Love Make the World Go Round by Jennifer Lopez and Lin-Manuel Miranda. Special thanks to Vortex, whose track Hope was also used in this episode. I'm Abe Abariah, and this is Life After Pulse.